He is a 17-time Bassmaster winner. He's won Angler of the Year at both Bass and the FLW Tour. He's the 1998 Bassmaster Classic champion, the first angler ever featured on a box of Wheaties. He was on David Letterman and even taught Ozzy Osbourne how to fish. This week, Denny Brower joins me on... Bob Cobb for the Bassmaster. Welcome to Mercer. Welcome one, welcome all friends, family, freeloaders, fish, and freaks. You're all welcome here at the Awkwardly Honest Fishing Podcast that goes by my last name, which is Mercer. Happy hump day, all of you, and I hope you're having a great Wednesday on one of the busiest weeks of the year for for a lot of people. Um, uh, you know, many of you might be out shopping right now, wrapping gifts, doing all sorts of stuff, and then there's the fool's like myself, that have not even started. So as you're watching this, today is the first day I'm actually going to go Christmas shopping. So um, evidently, I enjoy torture, um, yeah, which makes sense. That's why I'm a Toronto Maple Leafs fan. But I always wait till the last minute. Um, I don't know why. I should be smarter than this. So this comment is just basically to make some of you feel better about hey, you're not alone, and those of you that started in November and are sitting around sipping a festive eggnog right now or whatever you decide to enjoy, and uh, you can feel good about yourself that you're so much more organized than me and the few idiots that are still in the malls. Um, but this week's guest is pretty incredible. Before we get into that, I wanted, with it being the festive week, with it being Christmas, we started this thing last few weeks where I ask, you know, question of the week. I give you guys a question, you give me an answer, and I love it because I get to learn more about you. And so many of you are from different parts of the world, literally. I mean, people watch this all around the world, which amazes me. Um, but I thank you for that. But let us know what, you know, and it doesn't have to be a gift. It doesn't have to be whatever. It's just a Christmas memory you look forward to every year. Getting together with family. Maybe it's, for me, it's... I love reading the night before the Christmas to my kids. They sit around, doesn't matter how old they get, that, that's a big thing for me. So in this week's question of the week, answer that. Let me know what some of your, just one thing, and, and it'll spread positivity and, and people will enjoy reading it. And maybe it'll give some people some ideas of traditions they should take up. But... This week's guest is a special one, uh, an amazing, amazing career he has had. But what stands out to me over and over again is the amount of pros, not just what this angler has accomplished, but the amount of pros that directly point is that's the dude. That's the person that really motivated me to chase this carrot, to want to become a Bassmaster Classic champion, to want to win angler of the year, whatever it is. Denny Brower inspired an incredible amount of people. Denny Brower was a groundbreaker in so many ways in this sport, uh, not just technique-wise, but things that he was able to do, the Wheaties box, the David Letterman appearances. I mean, they dude caught, taught Ozzy Osbourne how to cast. I mean, that alone, a guy like me, would, would I'd be like, I'm retired now. What'd you do? Well, <laughs> I taught Ozzy Osbourne how to cast. But, but approving how amazing Denny Brower is, that's just like a little asterisk in his bass fishing hall of fame career. 
the things that this uh, gentleman did and continues to do is truly amazing. And I thank him for that. And I really am thankful because after the KVD show last week and how much he talked about Denny Brower, I thought, how perfect. Let's try get Denny Brower on in the busiest week of the year. But we were able to do it. So without further ado, we travel all the way to Del Rio, Texas to join the legendary Mr. Denny Brower. Denny, I, I don't get real nervous around a lot of, of uh, you know what I mean? We're just talking. I mean, you can't punch me through the screen or anything like that, but I, I'm kind of nervous this morning. I mean, freaking Denny Brower, what a Christmas, the Christmas gift that keeps on giving. Well, Dave, you have no reason to be nervous. Well, that's because you're thousands of miles away, but you are an intimidating character. You, do, do you realize how intimidating you are at times? Well, at times you can use that to your advantage, but no, I guess I really don't. <laughs> The whole reason I wanted to have you on here, aside from everything you've accomplished, it it blows me away how often and and there's I think one of the greatest things about the sport of bass fishing is the people in the sport of bass fishing and the the people that have created what we see today. But it continuously blows me away how often. When you talk to a successful pro angler and I say, who is, who is that guy? Who is the hero that you looked up to? It's Denny Brower, whether it be Seth fighter or Kevin Van Dam last week. I mean, do you realize the impact that you had on the future of this sport? Not just in your time, but still today. I, I guess I really don't. Uh, it's very, very gratifying to hear, but you know, you just go out and try to do your job and, uh, you know, to hear that type of uh, compliments coming from those type of people, that's very rewarding. It's incredible. And um, let's go, before we get right into it, like I want, I want to talk to you about what you brought to the sport in so many different ways and continue to bring to the sport. But how did it start for you? When was your, when was the, at what age do you remember being like, man, this is something I think I could, I could try to do? You know, it was something that just kind of developed, Dave. Uh, I guess I never really had that as a goal. Uh, I grew up in Nebraska, and there's not a lot of bass fishing in Nebraska, as you know. And I was actually a union bricklayer and had a, a gentleman that I worked with bring a Bassmaster magazine to work like in 1973 or something like that. And I thought, you know, that's kind of cool. I like to bass fish and uh, got to read about the tournaments and Obviously, there wasn't a bass club in my hometown, so I got a bunch of guys together and started a bass club, which is still in existence today. And they actually won the Bassmaster Club of the Year or whatever a few years ago. So that's kind of a cool deal. But then started to fish the, the state tournaments, qualified for a couple of the National Federation tournaments, did fairly well. I think I finished fifth uh, at Grand Lake, the one hand took one back then. And... Uh, kind of got to thinking about maybe it's time to go try an event. And they had one at Lake of the Ozarks, which is about as close to Nebraska as you're going to get about a six hour drive. And so, you know, I, I went ahead and entered. I put up my hundred dollars or whatever the entry fee was back then. And uh, talk about getting intimidated by people today. I walk into the motel where I'm staying and who's in the lobby getting ready to leave but Bill Dance. 
and he's the first angler I actually met. And uh, it, it was a deal to where uh, it was Bill's last tournament, my first tournament. Uh, so, so that was kind of unique in itself. But I ended up finishing 20th in that particular event, if I remember right, won like $1,000. It was a big shot in the arm confidence-wise. And I'd had kind of a working relationship going on with Ranger Boats. And uh, they offered me the opportunity to go try another one. And that led to a, a, like a 230th place finish on Toledo Bend. You know, I kind of got humbled in a hurry. But uh, I gave it a shot and just kept at it with their support. And uh, next thing I knew, of course, back then, we didn't have that many tournaments. You had to do something yeah. else to supplement your income. So I was a fishing guide along with doing some masonry work on the side. Anything I could do to make enough money to get to the next event. And uh, I think it was in 1984, the sport finally started to be televised. And that's where sponsors started to really come on board. And uh, the sports started to grow, the purses started to increase, and it enabled me to kind of phase out everything else and become a full-time angler. Bill Dance then, and I could only imagine what it would be like to walk in and see, because I think people forget who Bill Dance is in the way that like, you know what I mean? He's rammed his shin into enough tailgates and, and dropped, fallen in the water enough that people look at Bill Dance as this cuddly, funny guy, but he must at that time, I mean, he was as good as they get in this sport, correct? He really was. Uh, you know, he was just getting ready to leave and transition into full-time television. And uh, so that was the only tournament I really got to compete against. Uh, Bill, outside uh, some specialty events, I know we had an event later on, like the 25th reunion or whatever, and uh, he came and fished that. But great, great guy, uh, you know, first impressions mean a lot and how receptive he was to me when I met him in the lobby, uh, you know, wishing me luck, et cetera. Uh, you know, that, that, that meant a lot. I talked to a lot of pros and, and several of them mentioned one of the things that stood out to them about your career is they kind of referred to you as the first pros pro in the way that like you there was people that were good at business. There was people that were good at tournament angling, but you were kind of the, in, in a lot of people's memory that you made the blueprint of how to be a pro angler. Um, why do you think they say that about you? It, was it just timing or. Yeah, Dave, I think a lot of it was timing. I, I think I come up in the sport at the perfect time when it was growing. And anytime you have a sport growing, there's a lot of opportunities there. If you capitalize on them and, you know, I love to fish, but you got to be able to make a living at fishing. And so you have to look at how do you make a living and you got to really approach it as a business. And for me back then, I was going to capitalize on everything I could to be successful so that I'd never, ever have to quit fishing because there's a fine line between being out there and being a pro and being on the sidelines, being broke. So, and it was even more fragile in those days. And so I appreciated every sponsor I had. I tried to get with companies that had product I truly believed in. A lot of those companies I'm still working with to some degree right now. Uh, so that tells me a lot about those companies and it tells me I also made some good choices business-wise. But back then we did a lot of appearances for, for sponsors, for sports shows. 
there's obviously not as much of that goes on nowadays because of social media. And of course, the last few years with COVID and everything, but I was doing as many appearances as I could. And that's how I made a large portion of my income. Once in a while, I do 50, 60 appearances a year. And, you know, every day you're in a different city. And I know one time I booked 14 days in a row, not realizing how I was going to pack for that. So obviously the, the jeans were looking kind of bad at the end of 14 days. But, uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, as it went on, you did the videos, you did the books, you did everything you could to generate income. And of course, when the opportunity came along to do television for ESPN, I ended up doing that for eight years and then a couple of more years for uh, the outdoor channel. So, or the sportsman channel. So that was, uh, you know, opportunities that you just seize. And I think some of the guys look back at that and, and they maybe use that as a little bit of a blueprint, but you look at the other opportunities that came along, like the Wheaties box and the Letterman appearances, and, and just it was the right person in the right time, so to speak. It gave me some unique opportunities. The Wheaties box specifically, which I'm proud to be an owner of said Wheaties box. I, I paid a lot of money for that at a Bass Fishing Hall of Fame auction, Teddy. Um, and I'm, I'm it's flattened because... Well, because it came flattened, to be honest. I bought two. Yours came with nothing in it. David Walker's came full. Um, so I don't know what that means. Maybe you just, that means you gave away a lot more. But uh, I'm going to get that framed and everything. But when that opportunity came, did you realize at the time, or is that the kind of thing that happens? And it, it literally, as the years go on, you realize more and more what the impact, the, being the first angler ever to be in a Wheaties box is. I think it's a combination of the two. Uh, you realize being involved in sports, how big a deal the Wheaties box is and the people that have had the honor of being on the Wheaties box. And one of us announced that uh, whoever won Angler of the Year in the FLW Tour that year would have that opportunity. I knew what impact that would have. And uh, I think I just used it as a little extra motivation and it come down to the last event where it was against Rick Klein and myself, which, you know, he's always been a person that I truly looked up to. So it had a lot, a lot of meaning, not only to end up winning it, but over the years to see how people relate to that. It, it has a lot of legs, put it that way. Did, did you like Wheaties? I did. I actually had a lot of Wheaties over the years and still do. Maybe that explains why my box is empty. That could explain. <laughs> um you were for me definitely one of you know just one of the people who made me fall in love with the sport you know but what you brought to the sport was i mean you had that dale earnhardt feel about you watching you was it was that real or is that just a character that was painted on tv no it was probably about as real as it gets uh you know, everybody has a certain personality, and I just tried to play the game the way I felt it should be played. And at, at times, uh, maybe I was a little too aggressive, and other times, maybe I wasn't aggre as aggressive as I should be. But I think if you're a true competitor, you're going to play the game hard, you're going to try to play it right. And uh, that's just how I did it, and then you just kind of got to let the cards lay where they lay. Who, who did you play that game with more who did you who did you lock horns with let's say who was your sparring partners 
Oh, gosh, Dave. Uh, I always tried to hunt for water that other anglers did not uh, find. So a lot of times I would not have anybody in the areas I was fishing. That was kind of how I tried to fish tournaments, fishing uh, unfished fish, fishing fish that were overlooked by other anglers, etc. But occasionally uh, you would run into anglers. Biffle I'd run into up there and up the river once in a while. So, uh, you know, we'd have some discussions upon times, but uh, no, I really never had any serious conflicts or any one particular guy that we went head to head with. I had a lot of respect for all the other anglers. Yeah. A lot of anglers had respect, respect for you, but I think that's also, it's weird. Fishing's weird that way where we're all, everybody's good. You know what I mean? And, 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 and the people that are in the sport, I will say, there's a lot of incredible people in this sport, but it's weird how in fishing, like if you get two ex fighters together, they look upon like that was a job. We, you know what I mean? But in fishing it's, but it's, it's competition. Like I, I, I think it's the weirdest thing about the world right now that people are trying to eliminate competition, you know, like everything in life is competition, whether you're applying for a job, trying to win a tournament or get a freaking date, you're competing with, with people out there. Do you, do you agree or disagree? No, I, I totally agree. The, the more competitive you are, the more successful you're probably going to be. I mean, you could probably take it overboard in certain situations, but if you're not competitive, you're not going to be successful. That's the bottom line. And you can look at some guys just by the work ethic, et cetera. They don't really love what they're doing. They're not going to work hard enough to be successful at it. And they don't have that inner attitude where, man, I want to win. And you've got to want to win. you got to be competitive. And you can't take uh, take losses well, so to speak. You can, you can be a good loser, but if you're too good a loser, you're going to be a loser all the time. And uh, I just, uh, I know I used to beat myself up on the way home from some tournaments I won because I didn't win by what I thought I should have won them. You know, I lost some fish. I felt I uh, got a little careless at times, and I could have very well given the tournament away. And I'd, I'd be as mad as if I'd lost the tournament. And I think that's the edge you got to have. You got to keep trying to get better. You've got to realize you're never going to be perfect, but you got to strive for perfection. Is, is that love and that, that burn to win and that, like you said, everybody says you got to love it. Like th that to me, whether anything in this sport, it seems like it stands out as that's what you need to have. Like if you don't, maybe even love's not strong enough. Like you need to hate the thought of not being able to do this. Um, is that, is that the thing that stands out when you see people that come along and you're like, this, this is one you're going to have to watch. Is that, is that the, the biggest trait in the sport? I think you hit it right on the nose, Dave, when the thought of not being able to do it is what really drives you. And if you, if you love it enough, you're going to really work hard at it. You're going to be out there at first light. I used to be mad if somebody launched before me in the morning because I felt I wasn't working hard enough. And if I come in in the evening and there was still a boat uh, trailer a rig in the parking lot, I'd go find another place to fish until that guy got out of there. Because if nothing else, I wanted to mess with his mind let him know that I outworked him. So, but that was the type of dedication it took to be successful. And why? Because I didn't want to be eliminated from the sport. Something I loved. It's, there's no greater, you know, motivation than that. And, um, 
you know, th that's what I was kind of my point was where everything's vanilla in fishing. It's weird. Like you hear stories exactly like what you said about Kobe Bryant, who showed up before anyone and he wouldn't leave until they left just to prove that you're not going to beat me even in practice. That mental side uh, of competition, whether it's doing it to the competitor or even to yourself, um, it, it's it's what keeps makes people from having a career where they win a few or a career where they win everything there is to win in this sport, I think. Yeah, you got, you got to believe in your own ability, first of all. I think that's the most important part. They have that inner confidence, but it doesn't hurt to try to force that on the other people and have them believe that you may be the best out there too. And there's ways you can do that. And one of those ways is this, you know, to show them the right work ethic. That stands out throughout your entire career, but who, who were the ones that would throughout your career, does anyone you look back and you'd be like, oh, that dude shows up really early or who tried to outwork you throughout the years? Well, I remember Nixon as an example. It, it, it always frustrated me because he was the exact opposite. He'd be in at three, four o'clock in the afternoon, taking it easy. And, and I got to thinking, you know, this guy's just smarter than I am. He doesn't have to work quite as hard. Uh, I've got to dumb it out and stay till dark, you know, to figure out what the fish are doing. But there, there were several guys that had great work ethics. I remember when Mike Iaconelli first come on tour, he was one of those guys that'd be one of the last ones out in the evening so i knew right then and then there that he was going to be successful because of how hard he practiced so you know there were there were several guys like that i think as the years went on more guys started to realize that you had to put the time in if you're going to be successful it wasn't a hobby if you approached it as a hobby it was going to probably turn into a hobby for you uh you were going to be out of the game before you knew it. you already mentioned it but it one of the most amazing things throughout your career really has nothing to do with fishing, but the Letterman experience. So, but I mean, I've heard you talk about being on the show and everything, but like there has to be a moment where you get a phone call from someone that says, Hey, I think they want you on the Letterman show. Like, did you think people were pranking you? Yeah, you really kind of do. Uh, but I had an agent back then. And so I knew it was all legit. What was about to come down and, their producer actually calls you and does an interview with what potentially Dave's going to ask you question wise. And what you don't realize is when you get on air that he's not going to ask you any of that stuff. You're going to be blindsided by everything. So that was a very unique experience. Uh, it was also probably one of the most frightening things I'd ever done, even though I'd done a lot of television, you just knew the impact that Letterman had. And you also knew that you were representing the whole industry. And that just put a lot of weight on my shoulders. So, yeah, I was I was sweating that a little bit. And uh, it went fairly well. Uh, and then when I walked off the stage, the producer asked me if I'd be interested in coming back on for another show. And I go, well, yeah, who won? So I actually ended up getting to do Letterman twice. So it, it was a pretty cool deal. Which one? Which is like, I mean, sounds like a joke. David Letterman, Denny Brower, and Ozzy Osbourne walk into a bar. I mean, it doesn't even sound like real life. At uh, which one was was the Ozzy interaction with? Yeah, that was the that was the second one, I guess. Uh, the first one, I think Ted Danson was the the main guest. Uh, 
but the Aussie deal, uh, Ozzy was there trying to make a comeback and he was playing uh, a couple of songs on stage and that. And of course, during the breaks, they had me outside trying to teach Ozzy how to cast, which <laughs> you imagine how that went. He bounced one off a limo and all kinds of good stuff, but then they'd pipe that footage in during the breaks of that. So it was kind of cool. Uh, I did not understand a lot of what come out of Ozzy's mouth back then. Uh, it was a, a language that I totally did not understand, but uh, it was a very unique experience. And uh, the second time I was on, uh, I'm trying to remember uh, who the head guest was supposed to be, but anyhow, he was late. And so I ended up, uh, Jesse Jackson was okay. the main guest. And uh, they kept giving updates on where he was, you know, his entourage coming from the airport and all that. And they decided they're going to have to bring me on as main guest because he wasn't going to get there in time. So I probably got more airtime on Letterman than anybody in the history of the show because <laughs> they'd have me on and then they'd take me off and they'd bring me back on. And I think Jesse got there with like five minutes left or something like that. But it was kind of a neat deal to get that much airtime on Letterman. Incredible. Now, if I'm right, did they shoot that show kind of earlier in the day, five o'clock or something, and it airs that evening, correct? Correct. So what what does a first time, second time guest of David Letterman like? I mean, I just think it'd be weird. Like, I know you had accomplished a lot at that point in your career, and you probably weren't running home to watch the next show that you were on, but you're on David Letterman. Like, to, where do you remember where you watched it and 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 what the response was the days after? Uh, the response uh, was kind of crazy afterwards. Uh, you know, you had a lot of people call and congratulate you on not passing out, et cetera, or wetting your <laughs> pants on stage. But uh, other than that, I don't even remember when I watched it the first time over. They they sent me tapes of the show, et cetera. But uh, no, I don't. I didn't run right, right out and watch myself on David Letterman, that's for sure. I was just relieved to be done with it. Well, uh, I mean, I think it's one of the big, I think people throw around big things in the sport, like, you know, milestones when this happened. And I mean, those last two we've talked about, the Wheaties box and the Letterman, th those are huge moments for the sport. And I don't even think today's angler can, because they think late shows, and there's so many late shows now that, I mean, You'd be better to be on a big podcast than some of those late shows with today today's world the way it's there's so many channels. But Letterman at the time, I mean, it was sort of I mean, Johnny Carson is about the only thing that would have been bigger, I imagine. I totally agree, Dave. I I spent a lot of time watching Letterman, spent a lot of time watching Johnny Carson, both excellent late night shows. I watch zero late night shows now. Yeah, well, you're not the only one, but um so tell me about anglers coming to bass. I mean, you were there when a young Kevin Van Dam showed up. We talked to Larry Nixon about, um, it's always neat to, do you remember your first impression of KVD and, uh, and, and what you thought of him? I really don't, uh, other than the fact that secondhand feedback from Larry and Tommy telling me about, uh, them kind of having a little feud over a grassy point on Guntersville. That was my first uh, real knowledge. And that may have been Kevin's first tournament. I'm not real sure uh, where he did well, because I yeah. think he had 
the event there. But it was kind of a deal where I, gradually he just kind of came front and center. And, uh, you know, I don't remember the first time we really met, but we became really good friends. And over the years, uh, had, I have had a lot of fun together. I, and here's something that'll probably shock you, which I never do. I never, ever do real research for these shows. I mean, that's not the shocking part, but the shocking part is I actually did some research for this show. And one of the people I called was Hall of Fame Bassmaster writer, Louis Stout. And uh, Louis told me nothing about fishing, but he feels like you kind of hate him. Did you once try to steal Louis Stout? Louis Stout told me he was eye cast and he had had an injury and he was in the bathroom and he had a cane in the bathroom with him. Do you know the rest of this story? I, I certainly do. Louie and I have been good friends for years. And uh, he was in a stall in the restroom and I could see his cane sticking out. So I did steal his cane and he was kind of trapped in the restroom after that. <laughs> <laughs> he, he says, he says you hate him. I mean, he said you've shined his shirt and he says you've picked on him his entire career. Really? I, I really did. Yeah. We had a lot of, a lot of fun times together, but it was usually at Louie's expense. <laughs> <laughs> well, you you got to deal with the hands or cards that are handed to you. That relationship with an outdoor writer, it feels, I feel like that is so, if anything's changed in the last 10 years, especially that has really, like there's so many different writers you deal with, but, but it seemed like, you know, there would be, you know, Louie would deal with all the pros. You'd have these, you know, more one-on-one -on -one relationships in the past. Am I reading that wrong or right? No, you're reading it right, Dave. Uh, and that was one of the neatest parts about the era that we came up through was the great outdoor writers, the Tim Tuckers of the world, Steve Price, Louis Stout. And I mean, the list goes on, but those guys in particular, I spent a lot of hours in a boat with a lot of hours doing interviews. And, you know, I think one thing that I always tried to do is when one of them called was to return their phone call immediately because they had a job to do just like I did it. And repeatedly, one of their best keys I'd keep hearing about would be anglers that ignore their phone calls, don't get back to them. And, uh, you know, to me, that just did not make good business sense. What well, you're cutting your own throat. You're not representing your sponsors correctly when you do not respond to the media. So the media can make you a break. You. And those guys were great friends. And I know there was a lot of times I probably got an article or, you know, got some mansions where I would not have got mansions if I hadn't returned their calls promptly. Yeah. It, it um, it, it's amazing how it continues changing. And I talked to Zona too. And Zona said you perfectly timed your exit from the sport because you got out right when social media was starting to take off. And uh, he said, quote unquote, Danny hated social media. Well, I don't hate social media. Uh, you know, it's just a sign of the times. It's how things change. You stop and think about it. We used to go do a seminar at a store, and if you had 500 people show up, you had a good crowd. Uh, now you can, you know, do one podcast or whatever, or one post, and you can reach just thousands and thousands of people. So it's just a different way of kind of doing the same thing. Uh, do I hate it? I don't enjoy it as much as I enjoy going out fishing. Put it that <laughs> being involved in a tournament, there's always different aspects of your job that you enjoy more than others. But it's just something that you deal with nowadays. Yeah, and, and to be clear, I think he was talking more specifically 
as a competitor, you hated the fact that there was people out there trying to show exactly what you're doing while you're still trying to finish doing what you're doing. Yeah, he's ex absolutely right there, Dave. Uh, you know, there's some things you'd like to keep a little closer to the vest and uh, as far as uh, giving up spots, et cetera. At times, I'm not sure that's good for the sport to see certain areas get over fish just because it is public knowledge. So, you know, there, there's pros and cons to all that. It, um, I totally agree. I mean, it, it, it's, it's such a weird thing. I mean, because the, the thing of fishing, it's embedded in you to keep secrets. And, and now, I mean, there is no say like the day you don't even just see what the person threw. You saw the exact movements they're giving that bait and, and everything. It, it's, it's shocking. How much I, obviously I know you do a ton of fishing still, but how much time do you spend watching competition? at this point, if any at all? I, I do spend some time. I, I still enjoy, you know, watching the Bassmasters and watching Major League Fishing, watching all your friends still compete. Uh, you know, that's a part of the sport I miss more than anything else is the camaraderie, which we talked about a while ago and seeing all your friends and being out there competing against them, the good times and all the things that go on out there on the tournament trail. You miss that. You miss that a lot. So it's kind of still a way for me to stay connected by watching those guys out there and also learn some of the new guys that are, are coming on that are going to take their places. So yeah, I, I enjoy watching fishing, but I enjoy watching good fishing shows. Some of the fishing shows I have a little trouble watching, obviously just like watching Turkey hunting. I can't do that, but I can watch deer hunting. So, you know, you have, you have certain things you enjoy and uh, I'd rather be out there fishing than actually watching fishing. But when the wind blows, Watching fishing is not a bad thing. No, no, it's, it's not. Um, Larry Nixon, you mentioned him earlier. Coming back to the Elite Series, is that something you would ever think about doing yourself? Oh, gosh, yeah. I, I, I think about it. Um, you know, I think I was, what, 65 when I retired, something like that, and I'm getting ready to be 74 now. Uh, I'm probably in better shape now than I was when I quit fishing. Uh, I know my heart's in better shape, that's for sure. But uh, then I think about life on the road and, you know, traveling up and down the highways, dragging a boat with all the truck traffic and going to places that uh, you don't know where you're going to stay. And, you know, the negative part of being a tournament angler. And, uh, you know, I'm really enjoying life right now. I think I did retire at the right time. Uh, the sport was awful good to me. Uh, there was a lot of things I wanted to do outside of the sport, like fish more. Yeah. Because when you're actually fishing for a living, uh, you've got so many commitments. You don't get a fish as much as people think you get a fish. Now I get a fish whenever I want to fish. If I want to go to Mexico to El Salto or Picachos or Comadero, I can do it. I live on Lake Amistad, which... You know, who, who did, wouldn't enjoy going out fishing on Lake Amistad where you get the potential to catch 10 pound plus fish. So uh, I enjoy what I'm doing. I got the opportunities to do a lot of hunting. My schedule's free. I can do what I want to do, so to speak. I still have some commitments, but overall, no, I'm, I'm pretty happy being retired. So, so you're not, I mean, I, we hear every once in a while, Randy Block had a big proponent of it. We need to bring out a seniors tour. You're, you're like, I'm good. I really am good. Not that I wouldn't be very, very tempted because I'm very competitive and 
I just feel like right now I could jump out there and maybe do well. You don't know until you try. But uh, now I don't want to really get into that rut again. I, I'll never say no totally, but it's not something I'm looking to do. Big topic in the sport today. I'm sure you hear all about it and, and forward-facing sonar. What is your take on it and uh, a fan, good, bad, indifferent? It's just like social media. It's something that changes in the sport. It's, uh, you know, the evolution that happens with anything. And uh, I'm not sure it's bad. I'm not sure it's good. I, everybody's got to look at their perspective on it. I, I have it on my boat. I kind of enjoy it. The first day I went out with a mega live, I had not a clue what I was doing. And I saw this blob sitting out there about 10 foot deep. And I threw a football jig out there and all of a sudden this blob's coming up to meet my football jig. And I set the hook and I'm thinking, man, this is easy and got it in. And it was a nice catfish. So, you know, I, I didn't know what I was throwing at, but I knew I was throwing at a fish. And since then I've had a lot of neat experiences with it. Uh, I use it more for, especially on this, like with all the hydrilla to find the isolated clumps of hydrilla that sit out, follow the breaks, uh, you know, for a lot of other things other than just to try to spot fish. So it's a tool. And I, I think some of the guys are so obsessed with that tool that they're maybe losing some of their ability uh, all around as an all around fisherman, the things you need to do as far as reading the weather, doing this, doing that. So I, I think you just got to use it as a tool, something else, but not become, it's kind of like sight fishing. There, there's a time and a place for everything. Have you seen anything come along? Because I always wondered, you know, like, did people freak out this much with every other evolution of electronics? Um, or is it, or is it, are we just hearing more of it now simply because everybody's got a voice on social media? Yeah, I think that's a combination of it. Uh, I don't ever remember in the history of the sport something that received this much negative feedback. And, you know, there's a few guys out there that keep harping on it, trying to keep the fire stoked, so to speak. But, you know, a few years from now, we'll probably look at forward-facing sonar as something pretty primitive, just because you know it's going to evolve into something bigger and better. Uh, you know, will they ever outlaw it or have circuits where there are no uh, high-tech uh, electronics allowed i don't know i actually hope not because i think you need to have the progression of a sport moving forward and you know there's a lot of money in electronics and those companies put a lot of money back into the sport and for a sport to be successful it takes that money to keep the wheels turning so i think you need to look at the big picture totally agree i, I totally agree things have a lot of stuff has come along in your career in the time you fished, is there anything that stands out to you as, man, I should have done that sooner? Because it, it amazes me the stories you hear about people that are like, yeah, I never tried that. I wrote it off. And then two years later, I was like, you idiot. You should have embraced it sooner. Oh, yeah. There, there's, there's been a lot of those that come <laughs> along. I remember when a bait called the Sluggo came along. I was, uh, you probably remember that. Yeah. It's been a years ago, but I was out like in Connecticut doing an appearance at a ranger dealership. And this guy came up to me and kind of hiding these baits. He goes, you need to have these and, and, and try them. And I looked at it and I go, you know, trying to be polite. Yeah. I go, okay. 
And he was the guy that I think his name was Herb Reed or something like that, that actually designed the slugger. Yeah. And I didn't have a clue. And I didn't realize a bunch of the guys had been really doing well on it up in that part of the country. I come home, I threw them in the tackle room. And a couple of years later, after I had my rear kicked good by guys that were secretly using them, I finally found out what I was missing out on. So a lot of these baits, you got to try to stay on the leading edge. You, know, you look at the baits like the Thunder Cricket, the vibrating jigs, things like that. You got to adapt when they come out. And, uh, and there's been a lot of those situations over the years that you need to try to stay on the front edge rather than the back edge. Yeah. And I think that's one area where you, you were your entire career. And I don't, I, I think in some ways it's weird how people get like, everybody paints you as this jig guy, this flipper, but I think you were a lot more versatile than people care to remember. It's kind of like Jason Christie. I mean, everybody thinks all Jason Christie ever throws is a spinner bait. He's got a lot of hammers in his toolbox. And, and I believe you were that way too. Do you agree? Oh, absolutely. Dave, you had to do what you thought you needed to do to win. And there were some tournaments, yeah, I love to flip. If I could pick a flipping stick up with a jig and get by for four days, that'd be wonderful. But that wasn't always the case. I I remember we had a tournament on Lake Chickamauga where I was catching them casting a jig on the deep edge of a hydrilla line on the lower end. And I was, I was in the top 10. I want to say I might have been 10th going into the last day. And the top 10 was like a who's who of bass fishing. So my odds of winning were really slim. And at, at noon fishing my grass line, I had zero fish. Well, when I was pre-fishing or pre during one of the practice days, Steve Price, one of the outdoor riders, wanted to ride along and do an article. And I was way up the river and I was graphing a ledge, a ridge that ran out into the river. And there was all kinds of shad, big schools of shad laying off this ridge and there was some game fish down there. I couldn't tell what kind and I couldn't get a bite. And I told Steve, I said, if the wind ever blows right, then Chad get blown up on that ridge. Those fish are going to follow them, and this could be a good spot. Well, at noon that last day, I got to thinking about this spot and the wind's blowing like 30. And I know it's going to be like a ride from hell to get there, but, and I'm only going to have like an hour and a half to fish once I get there. And I get up there and uh, I caught like three fish that weighed 18 pounds, cranking, throwing a crankbait on that ridge. I come in and I end up winning the tournament. Uh, you know, countless times it's decisions like that, that yeah, you could have ended up uh, 40th in the tournament by making that decision, or you could end up winning it, but you got to give yourself that opportunity. Is momentum real in the sport? I mean, you hear outdoor writers talk about it and I've seen countless times with countless anglers, it happened, but as a competitor, what's your thoughts on that? Without a doubt. Uh, some of it's his self-belief. Some of it's uh, how the conditions are set up on certain uh, time periods that help you get on those type of roles. But I, I've, I've seen anglers go most of their career and never do real well, get a paycheck down in, and all of a sudden they get in the right situation and they win a tournament, well, they're liable to win the next one right after that. And then they'll have a bad one and they go, oh, I just got lucky and you'll never hear from them again. So momentum kind of helped them through uh, a couple of situations there, but they didn't truly believe and have that self-confidence to where they could keep it going. 
but you take a good angler and you let him get on a roll and it gets pretty scary. And it amazes me because you can take the exact same angler and you see that angler two years later or two years before that. And I take it down to like, it's that exactly what you said, that split second decision. Like, I mean, the late great Aaron Martins. I mean, I've seen him and, and one of the most naturally talented anglers to ever fish in our sport. But I, and me and Aaron have to had talked about this in the past, but you'd see Aaron on his angler of the year seasons and he would be like fishing along and he'd just be like, they're on that point there and make a split second decision and go. Then a year later or whatever, when the season gets going wrong, Aaron's like, Oh, you think they're on that point or no, they're probably in that time that, that they, that he spends thinking. And that's not a slight on Aaron by any means, but it's amazing. I think people underestimate just how much that mental power you can say it, but if you don't, you know, you can say all the right things in the interview, but if you don't really believe it, you, you're done out there. Yeah, when you get into that zone, so to speak, you don't ever second guess yourself. You just go with the flow. Uh, I know a lot of the tournaments I was fortunate to win over the years. I won them in tournaments or won them in areas the last day that I'd never ever fished before in my life. But they had all the right ingredients. But what I knew was that I wasn't going to win in the spots I had been fishing because I'd basically milked them for all they was worth. So in order to give myself an opportunity to win, I had to venture out and find some new water, so to speak. But you got to have that self-confidence to make those decisions. And when you get on a roll like that, uh, it just seems like every move you make is the right one. You, you're totally soaking in everything that Mother Nature's telling you, weather-wise, et cetera. Each bite is telling you something. You just uh, you wish you could just keep that bottled up forever, so to speak. But it does come and go. Uh, and a lot of times you'll get in a scenario where everything just goes against you. You may have found the winning fish, but maybe three other guys found those same fish and suddenly they become a 20th place finish rather than a first place finish. So there's a lot of variables in the sport. You just got to, you know, make the best of the ones you can control. How do you fix it when it goes wrong? Is that something you figured out through your career? Because I'm sure that must be like to hear that and to go through that, that must be one of the most frustrating things in the world. It is. And it, it's something every angler goes through. You got to realize that. And I think the longer you do it, you realize it's part of the sport. As long as your work ethic don't change, as long as you're out there giving it everything you got and you still believe in your decision, it's just a matter of time till it's going to turn around. You also have to understand that you're not, the world's best at everything. You might try to tell people you are, but you're not. So some conditions are gonna yield a little stronger to your type of uh, uh, techniques that you do the best and uh, some weather situations are. So a lot of things play a part in when things get right for you to win. So that's just part of it. Bad streaks come and go and so do good streaks. It's the right way to look at it, but it's also what drives people absolutely crazy in this sport. Um, so how old were you when the journey started? I, I mean, I feel like you were working and did you, you were not the 13 year old kid that said, I'm going to do this and did it right out of high school. Now, I think I was probably about 33 when I jumped into the tournament game. So I was, I was not young at heart, but kind of going back to what you were talking about, uh, 
I think the best attitude to have in bass fishing is you're only as good as your next tournament. Because uh, if you win one, you still got to go hard, work hard to prove you're just as good in the next one. And if you have a bad one, you just kind of got to put it out of the way and look forward to the next one. Yeah. And it, over and over, you hear people winning things. That, like at one point, I remember as a fan, it was Will Denny ever win a Bassmaster Classic? And then you win one in the Will, he, will anyone ever win a Bassmaster Classic other than Denny Brower? It's just amazing how the media wave switches. But talk to me about that pressure. Like, I don't think, I think people underestimate the pressure of a classic. Like, if you hit that out of the park early in your career, it takes a lot of pressure off. But the more you accomplish that isn't a Bassmaster Classic, it's like, to use a bricklayer term, it's like another brick on your shoulder, it feels like. It really does. Yeah. Uh... And with the classic, it just became one of them monkeys on your shoulder, so to speak, because, you know, you'd want a mega bucks, the superstars, you had these other good things happen in your career. But the one thing everybody really relates to is the classic. And I've had a couple of seconds, thirds, fourth, fifth, I don't know, about every top 10 position, but first. And so, and I'd been last a couple of times. So I'd kind of seen every position that you could have at a Bassmaster Classic. So when it finally all came together and, and I won, uh, it was uh, probably the biggest weight that ever got lifted off my shoulders. Not just so much for me, but also the companies that had had my back all those years and uh, were hoping that a classic would get them that extra exposure. It was pretty neat to, to see them, how uh, happy they were that I finally did accomplish that. As a classic champion, I, I got to imagine watching that moment happen, whether it be for Jason Christie last year and talk about a weight. That's exactly what that felt like. Weight, like literally it looked like weight was flying off of him as he stood there. Is there like a, Kinship that regardless if it's somebody, you know, you're friends with whatever you, I mean, you've done something that so few anglers have ever done. Well, it, it's no different than football, you know, with the Super Bowl, everybody that participates in football, they want to get to the game and get to the game and win in the game are two different things. And there, there's a lot of teams that get to the game, but never, ever get to Super Bowl trophy. And it's no different with the Bassmasters Classic. And unfortunately, there can only be one winner. And, you know, you can fish uh, if there's 50 competitors in a Classic and you get a fish 20 different times, your odds still are not that great you're going to win. So, yeah, it's pretty special when you do win one. You do not take it for granted. Uh, you know, in front of me, I'm looking at a trophy case with the Bassmasters classic sitting right there so it's pretty special to me one of the most special things and i don't even know if this is factual but i believe i know he for sure he was in it but your son chad was that his first classic the same classic that you won you know i'm not sure if it was his first one or not i should remember that but i don't but i do know he had big bass one of the days of that classic and uh it, it was pretty special to have him there on stage with me and I think he was as excited as I was because we were in business together. I mean, he was my road partner. And, uh, and of course, my mother, I'd flown her in and one of my aunts. So they were there for it. So that was just a pretty special event. It, it was an amazing event as, as every classic was. But, I mean, even I remember watching it back then, and, and that stood out to me. Like, how cool is it that 
he's winning it and his, and his kids competing. I mean, it just, that doesn't happen. You hear like the odd thing where a athlete sticks around for a long time and gets a chance to play with his kid. You, you were at the top of your game and both of you out there is, uh, does that stand? That's gotta be personally one of the most gratifying things, not just the classic, but that opportunity to be in business with your son. Oh, it was Dave, without a doubt. That was the highlight of my whole career. I remember, uh, Chad, he was, he was wanting to jump right out on tour. And I told him, I says, if you go get your college degree, I'll be your number one sponsor right off the bat. And he went and got his college degree. And I think it was like the second event or whatever that, uh, he fished on the main tour, uh, him and Rick Clun were head to head on, uh, old Hickory Lake going into the final day. And he ended up winning that. And, you know, I look back at highlights of my career and that's right up there with the classic. I mean, uh, it was just a pretty special moment. Here's a question that I've wanted to ask you your entire life. I, I, I think one of the reason people fell in love with you is your, I mean, the amount of docks you fished and just that, that it's that it's the style of fishing. Everyone loves, but if you're a bass angler, you might like other stuff but everybody loves throwing a bait under a dock. And all I kept thinking is good Lord, the amount of docks this man has fished. He must've gotten yelled at a lot. <laughs> I've had garden hoses turned on. <laughs> I've, I've never been shot at, but uh, yeah. And, but you, you had to learn how to play the dock game. Uh, if there were people on a dock, a lot of times I just skip that dock. If they had lines out, I'd, you know, just kick it on high and go around to the next dock. So you kind of had, had to play the public relations game a little bit when you were fishing docks. And, and some of those people, you could almost sweet talk them out of being mad. Well, you, you definitely fished a lot of them. And uh, being a pro when you did it versus today. A lot of sports, you'll hear people say like, oh, I wish I came along 10 years later. Look at what they're getting paid or look at the opportunities. Do you feel it was tougher to break the ground that was like unbroken in a lot of ways when you did it or today? I think it's probably tougher today to make a living out there. Uh, you know, when I first got started, it was hard the first four years. But like I say, in 84, when TV got involved, and I'd fished that first tournament in April of 1980. So four years into the sport, I was just getting to the point where I felt that I could make a living at it and wasn't going to be eliminated, so to speak. But that was also the time that sponsors really got involved and sport was growing fast. And there were some good endorsement deals to be made, which kept growing over the years. So I don't know if a lot of them same type of endorsement deals are still out there. I'm not that hands-on business-wise of exactly what goes on out there on the tournament trail now. But I would not, you know, it afforded me a, a great livelihood. I can do exactly what I want to do nowadays. What more could you ask from any job? Uh, so, no, everything was good. And I would not trade places at all. I, I think I actually came up in the perfect time in the sport. I've had a lot of outdoor riders tell me the same thing that that was the era where the sport was really growing. And I think with any sport, if you can be there during the major growth spurt, you're probably at the height of that sport. 
At 33 years old, leaving his job to fish full time, you must have had a lot of people tell you you were out of your mind. Exactly. I never had anybody <laughs> tell me I was making a good decision. My mother thought I'd lost my mind. Uh, you know, it was just one of those deals where you got to look at what you have to lose. And I was kind of in a rut where I was at where, yeah, I'd make decent money, but then during the winter time when all the snow blew in, I'd be uh, once in a while unemployed and I'd be back to square one come spring. And so I really wasn't getting ahead. I was just getting by, which nothing wrong with just getting by, I guess, but uh, I wanted more. And uh, I just felt that uh, I could catch fish with anybody. So I thought I needed to give it a try. If it didn't work out, I could go back to what I was doing. So I didn't really look at it as that big of a, of a, a gamble. What was the gamble was moving from Nebraska to Missouri to where you really didn't know anybody, where you needed to be somewhere where you could fish year round, where you were more centrally located driving to the tournaments, where you had more opportunities that way. So that was a little bit of a gamble, but nothing I ever regretted doing. It amazes me, you know, the amount of pros I talk to and it eventually comes out that, yeah, my guidance counselor in high school said you're an idiot or, or, you know, a buddy who I used to play baseball with told, you know, told me I was ruining my life. And it's amazing the amount of pros that are literally, that's one of the driving things in the back of their head. That person who said you couldn't, was there ever any of those? No, there really wasn't. You know, I had a lot of people tell me I was crazy to try it, but, you know, ultimately it's, it's between you and the fish. Uh, you've got to have the mentality to go out there and work hard and succeed. And, and I just felt uh, from my past history and club tournaments and regional tournaments and things like that, that I could compete if, if I worked hard. And yeah, were you going to be successful? Uh, it was hard financially. Uh, there were times I wanted to quit. I quit many a time on the way home. I know uh, I fished a tournament on the James River, and I'd never been on tidal water before. And I think I went all three practice days and all three tournament days and never had a bite. Wow. And I quit for good on the way home from that. And the time I got home, I unquit. I was <laughs> just mad and ready to go back and learn how to fish tidal water. I just realized there was a lot I did not know about the sport and some of the lessons I think help you succeed in future years because you realize you do not know it all and in our sport if you think you know it all you're going backwards so uh, eventually I ended up winning on tidal water so you know so, some lessons just take a little more time. Which is the biggest lesson you wish you got earlier in your career what what element of the sport do you wish like man if I'd have figured that out when I started at 33 this would be a whole different world. I, th I think the deep water end of fishing, you know, I, I was primarily a shallow water fisher, fisherman most of my career. There were a few exceptions to that where I'd get out on deep grass lines, et cetera, but I'd always try to find something shallow and remote. And, you know, once I made that, once I retired, uh, this particular lake I live on, it's a lot of offshore structure fishing, a lot of deep water fishing. I mean, I've caught fish 87 foot deep here stuff I had never even tried while I was fishing professionally. So overall, I think I'm probably a better angler now all around. Am I a better tournament angler? Probably not. 
but knowledge wise, I just wish looking back that I had that deep water game to rely on a little bit more for when the shallow water game wasn't working. So yeah, uh, that'd be one aspect I, I wished I'd adapted a little earlier in life, but we didn't have all the electronics and things we do now either that and GPS and things that make all that so much easier, you know, you look at the mapping in that we got now, shoot, it's, it's crazy. So. It really is. It's, uh, it's amazing. The advancements that they continue. What I was thinking about is what is it going to be? Like, if it's this now, what's it, what is forward facing sonar 10 years from now? Like it is, it is, it is so shocking. Um, just to look at, you know, like the evolution, like I think there's been several times where I've been like, okay, this is as light and as sensitive as a rod can get, but yet they have a trade show every year and they just keep getting lighter and more sensitive. What is the, in your opinion, in your time, what was the biggest innovation in the, in the sport, whether it be gear, whether it be electronics, whether it be, you know, approaches, what do you think that stands out to you as this was the change in the sport? Oh boy, Dave, uh, you can look at boats and motors, tackle, rods and reels. Uh, you know, when fluorocarbon, Seaguar first introduced fluorocarbon, how that changed things. You, you look at when tungsten weights came along, how much better you could feel. Uh, there are just so many things, but I think GPS, uh, spot lock and things like that have recently just totally changed the ball game to make, uh, an average fisherman, a lot better fisherman. And I think that's how you, you just can't look at the pro side of things. You got to look at how does it help the average fisherman, that type of impact. And I think some of those things have just made a huge impact, whether you're fishing for crappie, walleye, you know, bass, whatever. So there, there's been a, just a lot happening in the electronics field that really has been totally game changers for the industry. You mentioned catching a catfish earlier, but um, I got another catfish story about you. Did you once, confirm or deny, did you once have Louis Stout convinced that you were about to catch an actual cat off of the shore? Well, we're not going to go into that story, Dave. <laughs> I've had enough calls from PETA over the years. <laughs> okay, so I, I take out, I will confirm that. The cat was not hermed. There was just, just so you know that when the story ends, it... Yeah, totally unharmed. Yeah. Once again, Louis Stout was the victim. Yes. <laughs> we lost um, the man who I refer to as the chicken that laid the egg, Ray Scott, this year. Um, tell me about your relationship with Ray and 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 your thoughts on him. Uh, Ray was one of a kind. Uh, you know, you wouldn't be where you're at or I wouldn't be where I'm at without Ray. Um, I don't know whether you can put in the words the impact um, he had. He, he meant a lot to me. Uh, we had a great personal relationship, obviously. I uh, had a lot of fun over the years. He was uh, he was probably one of the best uh, promoters that any industry had ever, ever seen. Uh, definitely the right man at the right time to move this sport and push it, push it forward. Uh, got a lot, of, a lot of really good memories there. Uh, very, very sad to see Ray pass away. You know, we've, we've lost some real pioneers of the sport, Aaron and Forrest Woods and Jerry McKinnis and uh, Ray Scott in the last few years. So that's part of a sport aging. You can't get around that. 
but you just hate to see those people go. And I can tell you a little story about Ray. They had his uh, celebration of life in Montgomery. And uh, I told Shirley, I says, we got to go. We're going to do the swing. Oh, I know this story. I was there and I think I know this story. So I'll just shut up. Sorry. <laughs> We're going to leave Del Rio. We're going to drive the 16 hours or whatever to Montgomery for race celebration. Then we're going to leave Montgomery and we're going to drive to Springfield, Missouri for the Hall of Fame banquet. And then we're going to see the kids for a couple of days and then we're going to drive home. <laughs> like a great plan. So we take off and we get caught up in some wrecks where they got the interstate closed and we get way behind schedule wise. So we got to drive late at night. I got it all figured out. GPS coordinates where we're going to be and all that and we're going to get in like an hour early and uh, we're doing pretty good and we get into more traffic and construction and pretty soon I'm going we're going to be late so I start speeding and uh, I get to where my GPS tells me to turn off and I'm like a half hour before Montgomery and it's taking me across country and I'm going well this is great this is shortcut I'm going to save time and I'm getting closer and closer and I'm going, man, this doesn't seem right. And I pull up to the, what I had punched in on the GPS and I'm in the middle of nowhere at some warehouse and I get to looking and had the wrong address punched in. It was supposed to be a Atlantic highway rather than Montgomery highway. And I'm like an hour away and the service is starting. So we take off trying to make it for part of it. We get caught up in board traffic. We end up listening to it on the radio and did, didn't quite make it. But uh, Ray knows I tried. I got there close anyway. It, it um, I heard that story secondhand, and uh, I both laughed and felt for you at the same time, to be honest. I mean, I, I did. I mean, it's quite humorous that you traveled 16 hours to watch it online. <laughs> but um, maybe Ray was involved with messing with your, your GPS. There's no doubt in my mind. Were you ever involved in any of the, were all the tours and everything like the time on the bus traveling across the country doing seminars? Was that pre Denny Brower or were you involved in that? I was not involved in that. That was uh, before I got started. That was uh, Roland and yeah. John Paul and Bill Dance and those guys. So. so other than, other than Bill Dance, who, who were the characters like when you first met the, joined the tour and went to start doing this for a living who were the people that intimidated you the most oh I, I think all of them when i first started out because you didn't really have a clue what you were getting into but the more you fished and the more success you had the less you were intimidated by really anybody and because you realized that no matter whether it was roland martin or whatever they were going to have bad tournaments just like you had and uh, there are going to be tournaments you did better than them and vice versa so i think in a matter of a couple of years you start to gain that confidence that you can compete against them but uh all the guys you had heard about the tommy martins the larry nixons the, the roland martins etc back then the ricky greens a lot of anglers that uh you'd read about i think you were intimidated by when you first started out because you knew their ability and uh, there were a lot of other guys there that were real good that you hadn't heard about that, uh, you know, would pop up and win a tournament occasionally. But it seemed like always that name recognition 
found its way to the top. But as Ray would say, the cream always rose to the top. It really did. And one of the things that stands out that I don't think people pay attention to, like how different a Bassmaster Classic was then versus today. Like, I mean, the amount of functions, the amount of rules and stuff like that. I mean, Ray was literally building heroes. I, I think, you know what I mean? Along with, you know, he didn't do it himself. You guys did your job, but t tell me the difference between you, your first classic versus your final classic that you competed in. Oh boy. I know the first one I think was in 1982 in Montgomery, Alabama, Stanley Mitchell. Uh, I think won that one, Stanley or Paul Elias, one of the two, they both won on the Montgomery river. Uh, but gosh, it was, it was pretty simple. There was not giant crowds. It was indoors, obviously, but uh, you had something planned every night that you had to be required at a dinner or this or that. And a lot of times that sponsor had put on that particular dinner. Uh, so it was different. Later on at the classics, it got freed up quite a bit. Uh, the last classic I won was the last, classic or the classic I won I should say was the last time they had the winner's banquet so to speak where they had the big dinner and everything after that that all kind of went away and they just had the uh, the celebration or whatever yeah toast a bunch of brewskis got thrown down but uh, so it did change over the years but uh it was a gradual deal now, I noticed you you had mentioned your Bassmaster Classic trophy uh, being in front of you, but I noticed your background is is a whole different group of trophies. Does that kind of signify where you are in life, that those trophies right behind you might monopolize more of your time than the trophies that you're looking at being the fishing trophies? Well, yes and no. Uh, I'm sitting in my den at the bar, and behind the bar is the trophy case with the fishing trophies that really mean a lot to me. And, and behind me, obviously a bunch of the great hunting memories on the wall. So uh, it's, it's kind of a combination of both in this particular room. When you look at the sport today, did, did you ever imagine that it, it, you know, the live and like everything, did you ever imagine there'd be a day that you'd literally see live fit? Like you can watch it from your living room as easy as you could. If you followed anglers out on the lake. Now the technology's come so far. You didn't, I mean, even looking at uh, my background in television, how we did things, et cetera, you don't envision that it could come that far, especially on some of the remote lakes we fish, but the technology and with the satellites, et cetera, they've, uh, they've come a long way. And I just think it, add so much more and bring so many more followers to the sport where it's like being in the boat with a guy you can experience the uh, the thrills of uh, victory and also the agony of defeat right there and uh, you kind of kind of live in that tournament through the angler when you look back at your career outside of the obvious the classic and angler of the year titles and stuff like that what what stand if you had to be like you know that was the moment where I was on top of the mountain. That's when I felt, is there a moment stands out for you? Uh, probably angler of the year, uh, in 87. Uh, I just felt that that was a super invitational, the last tournament that determined angler of the year and to win it and to win angler of the year financially, that was a big shot in the arm. 
but also the accomplishment because I'd been close several times. And that really was my goal back then. Uh, and so I fished entirely different. I fished conservative a lot of times to get the points to try to, or the pounds back then to try to accumulate. Actually fished spinning gear back then, which was totally against my principles. But uh, <laughs> once I accomplished that, it freed me up mentally to fish to win. So it totally changed my career, so to speak, and allowed me to, I just felt that that validated my career, gave me uh, a little bit of freedom to gamble, to maybe people would understand if I finished last. And a lot of times in order to finish first, you got to be willing to finish last. So that was a huge turning point right there. Well, what's a term that stands out to you as one that you won, but did not win in that way? Like, you know what I mean? Like there's, there's times where, like I'll see an angler get a 10th place and be very happy with it because they know that 10th place, they outfished what they had, but there's times you'll see an angler get third place and they're miserable because they know what they had was more. Yeah. I mean, there was a couple of classics that the winning fish come off obviously, but, uh, that, that that's part of fishing. Uh, you look at, man, you could have won three or four classics if those fish hadn't got off and you end up winning one. Well, you're thankful you won the one, but you can always look back on the negative part of the sport. Uh, I remember uh, we had a bush shootout uh, in Dallas where uh, it come down to the end and it was Ishmael and myself. And uh, I had a little bitty line burner and I had like a four and a half pounder. And I watched him bag his fish and I saw him put two in. And I thought, well, I'm not going to take a chance on this line burner. So I tossed it back in and he'd got a third fish in there that I didn't see. And I lost by a couple of ounces, a hundred grand that I just threw back into the lake, you know, uh, and Bush was my sponsor, you know, oh. great deal it had been. So, uh, and there's over the years, there's several deals like that that have happened, but then you look at the one where you win by an ounce or two and, uh, the good decisions that you made. So that's just all part of it. But you always remember, the negative stuff a lot more than the positive stuff because you'd like to have a do-over. How much bush did it require to recover from that blunder? It was a good thing they were a sponsor. <laughs> One of the other things that stands out about your career, and and I, I don't hear you talk about it a lot, but, man, you battled health issues your entire career, it felt like. I mean – how were you able to compete? You know, why, I mean, how bad was it at times? I, at times it was kind of ridiculous. Uh, I know, uh, I blew a cervical disc out on Lake St. Clair, uh, and had to go to the next tournament and basically fish one arm, uh, and probably had to, that was one of them tournaments where you should have won. I think I ended up second or third fishing one armed on that flipping. So that was very, very frustrating. Had to drive home, uh, you know, with my hand on the disc to keep it from hurting. Um, you know, you blew knees out, you had knee replacements. Uh, I ended up having five major back surgeries over my career. Um, had a heart virus come and take out part of my heart and lung capacity, which is what really slowed me down to where I decided 
it was time to retire. And so I said, I'm doing fine. But I mean, you, everybody goes through injuries. Some of us have gone through a few more than others. It didn't slow you down too much. And I'm sure it was ridiculous to deal with, but man, everything you've accomplished in this sport, everything you've brought to this sport. And you know, we haven't even talked about like all the innovation you've brought to this sport. What, what, and this is a weird question, but it's a question that everybody kind of asks. What, what do you want people to say about Danny Brower down the road? Oh gosh, Dave, uh, you hope they don't say anything negative, but <laughs> Uh, just that I tried to play the game right and uh, tried to help move the sport forward. I guess that's about all you can ask from a career. I think you definitely did that. Um, and one thing I'm very thankful for that I have to publicly thank you. And I mentioned all the time in, in different interviews and stuff, but one of the things I'm very thankful for is you, you hung around long enough that I got to announce one of your victories, your last elite series victory, obviously on the Arkansas river. And that to me, is a career highlight. Like I'm always like, man, I'm glad he didn't decide to hang it up a year earlier. So I, I do thank you for that. Well, I appreciate it, Dave. That was a true moment. I'll never forget a pretty dramatic tournament. It definitely was. It was a lot, a lot of drama in that tournament in many, many different ways. What is the greatest advice you have ever gotten? And it's a weird question, but that's what makes it a good one in your entire life. When you look back, if you, one piece of advice doesn't have to be one person, but what stands out for you? Oh gosh. Um, I guess Forrest Wood sent me a note one time that said something like anybody can be a good loser, but not many people can be a good winner. And that just always made me think about how you conduct yourself. And uh, of course I spent a lot of time with Forrest traveling and doing seminars around the country. And, you know, Every person that came up to him, uh, if they requested something or had a suggestion, when they walked away, he took a pad out of his pocket and he wrote it down. He wasn't going to forget anything. And uh, he just taught me a lot about how to deal with people and how to deal with the sport. And uh, if there was any one person that really influenced me, not only with different things that he said, but by watching his actions, it was probably Forrest Wood. It's, it's great advice. Um, I, I also talked to Zona about you, like I said, and uh -oh. Zona kept freaking out because he said that you recently had an incredible mountain lion experience. Are you willing to talk about that? Or is, is that in the no cat talk? Oh, no, I, uh, I went mountain lion hunting for the, I'd been trying to get a mountain lion in West Texas for several years and just hadn't worked out. And, it's kind of been one of them deals I always wanted to do. I just think they're a majestic animal and they're so elusive and hard to hunt. And so I ended up going with a guy out in Colorado last year. And the, the line you see on the wall behind me here is the, the Tom I got last year. And it was a quite an adventure and pretty dramatic hunt, how it all come down. So I just had to go back this year. My neighbor wanted to go. He had never ever got a lion he wanted to get one so we went back to Colorado and he ended up getting his and then the, we got snowed in by a blizzard so day number four of the hunt I finally get on this big cat and half the challenge for me is the physical part it forces me to try to stay in better shape because you're out it was 12 below zero 
and you got to climb a mountain to get to where the cat is. And uh, it was, it was very tough physically. So that's kind of rewarding to overcome the physical part of the hunt to actually get there. And then the cat was in a cave and come out of the cave wide open. It got to be quite a rodeo, quite an adventure. It ended up being an absolute giant lion, one that very seldom did they ever see any that big. And so the outfitter told me, he says, you're going to hunt lions maybe the rest of your life, but you'll never ever shoot or see a bigger lion than that. So it was pretty special. So I'll be glad when that one comes back from the taxidermist because it's going to be a pretty cool memory, a hunt with a good friend and uh, some outfitters that have become really good friends. But just the memory of being out there in the mountains and the physical challenge of all of it uh, made it even that much more special. That's what life's all about, isn't it? The memories. Like like when you look, like all the cool things you accomplished that allow you to keep just making memories. Like it seems more and more I talk to people, it's never that moment I held up the trophy. You held up the trophy that was cool, but it really allowed you just to have more of those amazing moments. That's, that's the neat thing about life. The more memories you have, the more successful you are, because you're absolutely right. It is about memories. If you had to give one piece of advice to future tournament anglers, what would it be? Oh, boy. Just, just look at the sport as a business, because that's what it is. Don't get so caught up in yourself and in the, uh, you know, the victory, so to speak. Look at the big picture. How can I make a living for my family out of this? Because that's the attitude that it's going to take to be successful in the long run, because victories come and go, hot streaks come and go. But if you look at the business and try to lay the platform to be successful, you can be successful in the industry. Well, you've been very, very successful and continue to be successful. Um, oh, here's one. Who, who is the greatest? What, give me a few of the greatest anglers you've ever shared a boat with people that made Denny Brower go, Oh, Oh boy. Uh, you know, I didn't draw a whole lot of the really good guys back in the days when it was pro on pro, but Rick Flynn and I drew out a couple of times together and had great experiences. Larry Nixon and I, uh, Tommy Martin and I never did draw, uh, Rick, Ricky green and I drew out a couple of times together. Uh, David Wharton, if you remember David, he, he was a great structure angler back in his yeah. time. Randy Fye, uh, uh, the list goes on and on. So I drew a lot of neat guys, but there were some of them guys like uh, Roland and guys that you were hoping to draw that I, I just never, ever did. I don't want you to name any names, but who is, was there anyone that you were like, what is this dude doing out here? You had a lot of that. Uh, <laughs> I actually uh, drew a guy from Oklahoma, not knocking Oklahoma. No. He was probably the worst fisherman I've ever had in my boat and caught 34 pounds, if I remember right, for seven fish out of the back of my boat, and I weighed in two pounds. And this dude couldn't even cast. <laughs> so there's days where there is a golden pot of gold at the end of the rainbow for whoever you are but i had him in the right places and he'd use the wrong lure and it ended up being the right lure and you know just one of them deals but he told me he says uh, you know i think i'm going to turn pro and i go i think you really should and i never saw him again but 
He had on great red shorts with white socks all the way up to his knees. I do remember that. <laughs> it's amazing you remember what he was actually wearing. But I yeah. imagine, like, if you're... you don't forget a guy like that, Dave. <laughs> well, I mean, getting your butt kicked sucks by anybody, but getting your butt kicked by somebody who you're like, how has this even happened? That's the real injustice of our sport. They, that happens at times. He caught two five pounders backlash. <laughs> I felt that I needed to let my spinner bait sink a little bit more. Well, that didn't work for me. But, uh, it was wow. just day. So you have a lot of different experiences, drawn guys. Uh, you know, it went from there to obviously uh, uh, the co-anglers to now just observers. But uh, you've seen a lot of transition over the years. It must. Have, I mean, I I, I think we. I wish we had live back then because I could only imagine the debates between two anglers that are literally competing against each other on the, on their same boat. Oh, I had a guy that, uh, I drew at Bugs Island and, uh, of course you got to, he's entitled a half day and you're entitled a half a day. So you got to figure out whose boat you're going to use to start with. And, uh, I told him, I says, I'm onto some fish that we can both do really well, but they don't bite real good to about 10 o'clock. And then it gets better as the day goes on. And he goes, well, I got one little spot. He says, I'll go with you. And I go, okay. But I says, just keep in mind that my fish will bite better as the day goes on. So the first, I'll catch them on top water. I'll catch them on a popper. There was a key to it. You had to be up against the bank, throwing out all the points, bringing it in where the shad wrap. And I pull on the first spot and he catches a four pounder. And I go, well, this is great because he's got a little confidence now in what I'm doing. Well, come 10 o'clock, neither one of us has had another bite. And he goes, we need to run up the river to my fish. And I go, you never mentioned last night anything about running up the river to your fish. I go, my fish are going to start biting here pretty soon. And he goes, well, I'm entitled to half the day. And so it got went south pretty fast. And, uh, he goes, I'll have you disqualified if I can't go to my fit. And I go, well, if that's the way you're putting it, we're going to your fit. So we run a half hour up the river. He goes, I'm flipping. I go, lovely. I go, there's only one bank up there that's even got any wood on it. Everybody in the whole tournament has fished it. And uh, we get up there and, yep, it's a bank I'm thinking of. And he goes, just go right down this bank. I go, you drive me up here. You get up here and run the trolling line. And so he pulls up to the first log and he makes about 30 flips to it. And he pulls forward a little bit and I flip out to where the end of it was where he had never flipped. And I caught me a five pounder. And uh, so now he's making like 200 flips to each log. And we finally get to the end of the bank and he hadn't had another bite. And I think, good, we can run back down to my fit. And he loses one on the last log and he goes, well, they're starting to turn on. We need to rerun it. <laughs> so we rerun it. And uh, obviously, uh, I weigh in two fish that weigh uh, seven pounds the first day. And the next two days had the two biggest stringers of the tournament end up second to David Fritz for two ounces. Couldn't find him weighing because I wanted to have a little conversation with that guy. But, uh, he was long gone and he never weighed a fish the whole tournament, but he ruined, you know, my potential victory for me. So that was stuff you just had to deal with. I could only imagine. I could only imagine. 
I can't thank you enough for taking some time, especially at a busy time of year. But with that in mind, how does how does Denny Brower spend Christmas? What 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 what's ahead for you this week? Well, we're going to actually spend Christmas here at the lake. Uh, normally, we try to get together with the kids and everybody up in Missouri, but uh, we uh, made a trip up to Nebraska to film a goose hunt and a waterfowl hunt earlier in the year, and I ended up with pneumonia and was in oh, the no. hospital four days up there. So uh, we decided to, uh, rather than do a bunch of traveling right now, we were going to kind of stay close. So. Do you, do you have a Christmas gift, like whether from being a child to today that stands out, like what was your Red Rider BB gun? What, what was the one where you're like, ah, no, <laughs> that is a stare. That is a great okay. Denny Brower answer. <laughs> I really don't. <laughs> well, hopefully it comes this year. Um, real quick speed round to finish up here. Favorite movie of all time. Oh, gosh. Top Gun Maverick's pretty dang good, but I've seen a lot of them. Favorite song of all time? Blue Eyes Crying in the Rain. Oh, nice. Nice. Uh, favorite food? Lobster's pretty good. That's all pretty good stuff. Favorite kind of ice cream? Vanilla. Vanilla. Don't oh, you yeah. don't don't like, mess around with the new stuff. Yeah. Denny, you are honestly I, I mean I I can keep asking you ridiculous questions forever, but it is the week of Christmas and you took lots of time and did this, but I mean I could spend hours talking to you and I'm so thankful that you you took the time uh to share with myself and the viewers. I started off this saying you are the gift that keeps on giving and you truly are. I mean everything you've bought brought to this sport I consider myself lucky and all of us lucky to have had you. I mean, that's the greatest, that's the cornerstone of this sport. Like the, the people that made this sport is what is so special about this sport. And, and I consider you to be one of the best to ever play the game. And I, I thank you very much for, for spending some time with me. Well, I appreciate that, Dave. I appreciate you having me on. It means a lot. Well, anytime. I mean, I'll I'll call you up anytime. I mean, you you, you may want to block my number. I'm a bit of a drunk dollar, Denny. I got to be honest. And I'll probably be calling over the next few days. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the one and only Denny Brower. How incredible was that? Um, I I don't know if you could tell, but I did not want the podcast to end uh, thus the awkward fast speed round questions I asked at the very end because I mean it, it's Danny Brower I mean he is an amazing amazing man and I can't thank him enough for for making time at a time of year where nobody has time and uh, I started off by saying that this is the Christmas gift that keeps on giving and it truly was um Denny Brower, thank you for inspiring so many pros, so many pros from today um, and for the future. I mean, Denny Brower is truly one of the greatest to ever play the game, and I can't thank him enough for coming on this show. And here's an audible. At the beginning, I said um, question of the week was going to be, what is your favorite Christmas memory? Just one thing. It doesn't have to be a gift. It doesn't have to be. It might just be like for me, it's like the opportunity to read every 
Night Before Christmas, no matter how old my kids get, they gather around and I read The Night Before Christmas to them. And to me, that's one of the most special times. And actually, earlier this week, my kids said that is one of the things that stands out to them as the most special times, which made that even more special for me. So share that that, that was the question of the week, to share one of your Christmas memories that, that you know, this holiday brings for all of you. Um, but here's an audible. I want to add a second question of the week. So make more comments because it'll make this more successful. But the second question of this week is the whole time Denny was talking, I just had all these memories flashing through my head of different things that happened. You know, like I remember one time he had a giant bass on and he made it look like he lost the side of the boat. Then he pulls it up like a cool hand stud and goes, just kidding. Just all these different things flashed through my head. So here's what I thought. How about everybody shares also their favorite Denny Brower memory? And, and here's the cool thing. Maybe if enough of you share those memories, maybe we'll send them to Denny and, and, and we can be his greatest Christmas gift ever. But regardless, I, I wish Denny Brower a very Merry Christmas, his entire family. Um, and, you know, I'd like to, this is the last show of the year. We're going to take a week off next week. Um, it was kind of induced by my wife. She said, I should. And I, I agree. I mean, we haven't taken a week off in over two years with every evolution of this show. Um, but we're not going to put a hump in your hump day next Wednesday. But we will be back January 4th. And um, I thought we talked about Ray Scott's celebration of life. Danny told a great story about that. And this has stuck in the back of my head since I left his funeral. One of the amazing things about it, Ray's celebration of life was all the stories and just what impact he had. But but a song they played that inspired Ray. And I've literally, I left Celebration of Life and had it on autoplay over and over. And it is an incredibly inspiring song that so many of you probably have never listened to, especially our younger demographic viewers. And it's an Elvis Presley song. It's called If I Could Dream. That song inspired Ray Scott to build the industry that we have. And thank God people like Denny Brower, Larry Nixon, Rick Klun, Kevin Van Dam, so many amazing names, Seth Fider, Brandon Polnick. Through the generations, so many amazing people have come along to make this sport just the special sport that it is. And listen to that song at some point. I mean, maybe put a hump in your hump day next Wednesday by doing this. But sometime before we come back after the break, just take a headset. It's called If I Could Dream by Elvis Presley. If you enjoy a cocktail, might even make it better. And just for a minute, think about Ray Scott and all of the amazing people that make this sport that we're all obsessed by what it is. And um, I, maybe I'm over-dramatizing it. Maybe I'm overthinking it. It wouldn't be the first time. But it's listening to that song and just thinking about our sport is almost a spiritual experience for me. Um, and I hope it is for you guys. Um, so yeah, there's your homework. Leave a comment, a memory about Denny, something you saw in competition that really stands out. And listen, If I Could Dream by Elvis Presley. Because basically all it is, and, and you can just think of a young Ray Scott listening to this and getting excited about the future and what he perceived to be the future but without the past, there is no future. So look back. Take a few minutes. I mean, and I wish I could play it. This would be so much more impactful if I was playing it right now. But YouTube will pull this video down if I do. So go 
do yourself a favor and listen to this song and um, be thankful for the amazing people in our sport. I know I am. And um, I thank every single guest we've had this year. I thank every single person who's tuned in, every single thumbs up, every single review, good, bad, or different. I thank you all because this is becoming the podcast I dreamed of. What has, this podcast has proved is amazing because you prove that you don't need to be controversial. You don't need to break down to build up your viewership. You can build up and be positive and give something positive back to the industry. And you know what? You guys prove that people will listen. Thank you. Thank you all for tuning in week after week. We will see you January 4th. Have a very Merry Christmas, a Happy New Year, whatever you celebrate. Enjoy it. Enjoy it with the people that are around you because that's all that matters. And um, we'll see you January 4th. Thank you. Oh, Bob Cobb, another one of the forefathers. Take it away. Thanks for watching. Please like, comment, and subscribe. Because Bob Cobb of the Bassmasters told you to. You hear?